Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 82, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. On our first show of August. Can you believe it? And guess what I did today, Dan? I, I, I had this great beard that I was growing and uh, I was going to use the clippers, just went in. <laughs> Wrong setting, completely ruined it. So, yes, I'm, I'm beardless and my chin is very cold today. <laughs> I'm not listening. Oh, God, yeah. yeah, that's like some five-year fluff or something. <laughs> Four days' worth of stubble, mate. Uh, we should have a beard-growing contest. That's it, a beard off, yeah. <laughs> I love the fact as well that we're recording this at like just after nine at night and it's dark already. Yeah, God, well. Yeah. We'll be making our Christmas list soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is episode number 82, and actually quite coincidental because, you know what machine came out in 1982? Maybe the C64? I think it may have done. Oh. And this week, a bit of a Commodore 64 special, because um, the guy that we've got as our special guest this week... Now, obviously, you know, we like to swap guests up a little bit. You know, we've had, like, people that have ran some of the biggest companies in the world. We've had YouTubers on. We've had game developers. Often, we just like to get people on as well who've got some really good stories to tell and kind of share our passion for retro gaming and technology. Now, this week, we're going to be talking to Jörg Druger, who might not be a name you're instantly familiar with, but if you've got any interest in the Commodore 64 or retro gaming. If you love our show, I think you'll enjoy the content that he works on because he's doing the world's biggest and probably most regular Commodore 64 disc mag. Disc mag, this is crazy. It's a magazine that was distributed on disc, floppy disc, and it's still going in 2017. It's mad. And, you know, he's embracing new technology. So he's got stuff like a vice emulator built on there so you can kind of go straight away and emulate your C64 in the browser and view the magazine. And he's also doing stuff on Twitch. He's got his own podcast. And some of the people he's interviewed are just phenomenal. I know we've had good guests on this show, Mm -hmm. but God, you've got to check this other one, Scene World, out. Yes, if you enjoy our show, you're going to love the content that he provides as well. And obviously, we'll put links to uh, Scene World and everything in our show description at theretrohour.com. But Jörg, he's a really interesting guy, and we're going to get a bit of his history with the Commodore 64 because he was actually, you know, he didn't get his own C64 until 1990. You know, yeah, when most uh, people move into the Amiga and the ST and that by then. And he's got the kind of German perspective as well. Uh, yeah. Because we never really knew about the German scene, but we know it's massive over there. Absolutely. So Jörg Druger from Scene World is going to be our special guest in around half an hour from now. And also, we couldn't do this show week in, week out without your help. Now, every week on the show, we do the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And this is people that enjoyed the show that much. They want to see us keep doing the show week in, week out. And also want to help us, you know, run the show because obviously we have costs you know we're a weekly podcast probably the world's only retro gaming weekly podcast i'm just saying yeah yeah i, I don't know any of any of us if you do uh, please let us know and uh, <laughs> we'll fight them <laughs> <laughs> but you know we do have a little tip jar on our website obviously the only reason that we do it is not to make a profit out of this show we had two options really you know we could either get a sponsor on or an advertiser which we'd rather not do mm. but also some people just would like to help us so we don't have to fork it out of our own pocket every week. Yeah, and so. people kind of ask, why do you why do you not do a patron? Mm-hmm. And we don't do a patron because we want the content to go to every single person. We don't want to make an exclusive piece of content for patron people, yeah. you know, because then we can't deliver the retro hour because it takes us a long time <laughs> to do it, you know, so, every and, week. And some people don't want to donate every month or whatever, you know. No, so yeah, that, yeah. That's the thing about this. You, you can put as much or as little in as you like. It all goes into the running of the show and it all helps massively. So we want to say this week, making the Hall of Fame, thank you so much 
Timothy Blanks. Jonathan Kay. Philip Bailey, not from Earth, Wind & Fire, I don't think. <laughs> and George Tui. Who all made donations to the running of the Retro Hour podcast. Massively appreciated, guys. Thank you so much. And if you'd like to do the same, we have a little PayPal link. All you do is put your email address in. It takes seconds at theretrohour.com or you can donate via Bitcoin. Now also... We got more letters, Ravi. Look, more all these letters. We, we, hold on the letters. We've also had lots of videos and photos of people all over the world, kind of showing us where they're listening to the retro. Hour. Well, we've been asking this, haven't we? You know, if you haven't heard the last couple of episodes, we've been trying to find out where you listen to the Retro Hour podcast because we know we've got listeners all over the world, and we've had more tweets, emails, everything in this it's, week. It's fantastic seeing this all, and we're going to put it in a folder on the Facebook as well because it's on all the different kind of social networks. So we're going to put it in one folder so you guys can see. And the first one I've got is a nice video of Andy McRae and he's listening to the Retro Hour whilst recapping his C64C. <laughs> well, he'll be listening to this week's show. It's, you know, right up his street, surely. Yeah, definitely. And also, I've got one off James as well. He sent us a great picture, listening while painting his roof in Reykjavik in Iceland. Oh, nice. Yeah, keep up the good work, he said. What, is he on the roof whilst doing yeah, it? It doesn't look like he's very busy in the picture, I've got to say. Well, he's just sitting back listening and relaxing, <laughs> isn't he? Another listener we have is Chinny Vision, who's got a fantastic YouTube channel. You need to check that out. And he's listening whilst on a cycle, and he's taking a photo whilst he's cycling. So he must have some skills there to kind of hold it whilst uh, biking. And uh, Christopher McGonagall, he usually listens in Austin, Texas. Today, he sent the most brilliant picture. He goes, I'm listening in the park outside the Space Needle in Seattle. Oh, wow. Keep up the great work. And he's got a picture of him holding his phone with the retro hour logo. You know that really like weird spiky building in Seattle? Oh, yeah, that that's right cool. Yeah, so. Reminds me of Frasier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's it. And the final one we've got is old bloke Chris on Twitter. And he says he's been listening to the podcast on an 11 mile run. And he looks, he doesn't look very shattered for 11 miles. But yeah, that's <laughs> hardcore, man. I'm tired just listening to that. <laughs> yeah. And he's got a nice kind of background of a church and everything. It looks really nice, the area that he's in. So do keep those uh, messages coming in. Shows your pictures where you listen to the Retro Hour podcast. You can tweet at Retro Hour UK. You can drop them on our Facebook page. Or you can email show at theretrohour.com, which is also the same address if you have, like, sounds very old school to say this, a letter you would oh, like us to Dan read Dan loves paper. <laughs> Print it out again. Yeah. Excited every week for the paper section now. <laughs> do you remember when you were a kid and you used to watch, like, um, it'd be on, like, lunchtime on TV and, like, they'd read out the birthday mentions? Oh, yeah, yeah. Or the news or they'd Stack the paper. Yeah. Doof, doof, doof. So just like that. Yeah. <laughs> so we got one here. Uh, this is from Alicia. She goes, Hello from Canada. Although I was a kid and grew up in the classic arcade and console era, we had an Intellivision, and my first video game was a hand-me-down original Magnavox Odyssey. Oh, cool. Very nice. Um, if only I knew to keep it. I never knew about systems from the UK, like the Spectrum, Amstrad, CPC, Acorn, Electron. Friends had Commodore 64s here. But nonetheless, thanks to YouTube and creators like Kim Justice, Nostalgia Nerd, and a tendency for me to want to know everything I can about a topic, I've now found myself somewhat obsessed with these classic UK systems. And now she uses emulators to you know, try all these classic games from the UK that she missed out on. Uh, she loves the Dizzy games. Massive oh, wow. fan of them now. Even beat Fantasy World Dizzy on a Spectrum emulator for the first time. That is hardcore, and you're naming some really good YouTube channels as well. That essential watching. Well, Alicia also says, thank you for the podcast. It's been a fun part of my UK retro gaming education. I get really excited when I see you guys interviewing someone like the Oliver Twins or John Rittman, even if I didn't know who they were a year or two ago. Keep up the good work. Oh, great. I, that's fantastic. Just kind of doing exactly what we want, bringing information to new people. 
And the final one we got this week comes from Kira and from Retro Tech 100. That's a YouTube channel and the Transatlantic Retro Podcast and my Facebook friend, apparently. Um, <laughs> he says, hey, guys, I fall asleep to you and Ravi in bed on a Friday night. Oh. Not because it's boring, it's just relaxing. Keep up the good work. And Ravi, I found your YouTube channel recently. What a great channel. Oh, cheers. I, I, I should try and do some updated videos. It is a bit of a kind of empty wasteland at the moment. You know, uh, dust balls flowing through the YouTube channel. You know, he said he falls asleep to the show. We should maybe do it like, um, do you ever watch AMSR videos, ASMR videos on YouTube? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I've seen a few. Yeah. yeah, where people kind of, they talk like this and it's very relaxing. Yeah, I used to watch quite a few YouTubers. You know, Leo Laporte, he's really good to kind of listen to and mm. just drift off. <laughs> yeah, sorry if you're listening when you're driving right now. Keep, yeah. keep your eyes on the road. <laughs> so if you're doing a drop us an email for next week's show, the address is show at theretrohour.com. Right then, shall we get into this week's news stories? Yeah, sure. What a bit of a sad one this week. Mm. The end of an era, Apple have killed the iPod. Oh, did you have an iPod? Like a, a, an original one? I've got, about, I've got about 15, 16 iPods, I think. Oh, I started collecting them for a while. You were an early adopter, were you? Well, I got my first iPod, I think, in 2002. Okay. And it was one of the ones with the spinny round wheel on. I think my first was a Nano. Okay, Shame on me. Yeah. So I was pretty late. Well, that's what Apple have just killed. I mean, they've actually, this week, they've discontinued the iPod Nano and the iPod Shuffle, which means, you know, the only kind of thing that's branded iPod is the iPod Touch now. But it does mean that they haven't got any, like, you know, app-free music players anymore, no dedicated music devices anymore. Well, I saw that people were getting the original iPods and they were putting flash memory into them and getting, like, thousands upon thousands of tunes. And on that battery life as well, it lasts for ages with yeah. flash memory. Because you think, you know, you used to power a spinning hard disk. Yeah. On, I mean, I've got quite a few iPods that are kind of considered maybe a bit rare now. Like, I've got a, a fourth-generation um, U2 one, you know, the signatures mm. on the back, the black and red one. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I actually went through a phase where I started collecting quite a lot of iPods because people just giving them to me, so I thought, I'll try and get one of each one. Yeah. Um, but I did actually, for a while, I've got a few that don't work anymore. The hard disks are broken in them. So I got some compact flash adapters, mm. like, you know, you can use on the Amiga, for example, and you can actually um, just replace them with CF cards, but I, I can't get into half of them. They're really difficult to take apart, some of the fourth They're generation tiny, ones. aren't they? <laughs> oh, I've got, like, you know, the plastic clip things to try and open them. Yeah, snap it all and weird screw heads and all of that Oh, stuff. it's ridiculous. Some, some of them are easy to open, like the first or second gen are easy, but, yeah, it's like... So I've kind of given up on replacing some of the hardest well, in them. I guess they're doing this because of stuff like us, you know, streaming technology and audio that you could just get an app, download and yeah. listen to. You really don't need the iPod if you've got that on your phone already. It's crazy, though, isn't it? Because the iPod, obviously, it's been around. I mean, it came out in 2001, so you're talking 16 years then. But the fact that, you know, we went from tapes to CDs to mini discs to iPod, that was all quite in a short space of time, wasn't it? You know, within about 10 years. Yeah. And then the iPod and generation. now nothing. We're just a subscription. <laughs> That's, yeah. 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 It's like there's nothing physical anymore, is there? Yeah. But they're saying, you know, the smartphone's kind of done to the music player what it did to the camera, what it did to the alarm clock, you know, mm -hmm. killed alarm clock sales, you know, the, the PDA, the calendar, the address book. Yeah, what's well, that one image where you have that guy in the 90s and he's got the equivalent of all the stuff that goes on his iPhone now and it's like big handheld VCR recorder, you know, massive eight track. It's yeah, like, ghetto blaster, yeah. camcorder, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it is kind of cool that you can have it all in your pocket today, but I don't know, I remember like, do you remember the, the Zune from Microsoft? Yeah, I remember the Zune, but the main thing I remember before that was creative 
Creative did the mobile. The jukeboxes. Yeah, 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 before the iPods. And they were massive. You could not fit that in your in your pocket. I used to mistake it for my school lunch sometimes. It was that big. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I had a few different players. I always remember the Zoom, though, because we were talking about that when it came along as being like, you know, the iPod killer. And it came in that, like, you know, crap brown colour, didn't it? The yeah, original yeah, one. Yeah. It didn't look very aesthetically pleasing. But I remember the, the Windows Zoom software was actually quite good. I used to use that as like my... Well, Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, too. They're like, oh, what's this? It's a Zoom. It's the thing that all people are using now. It's, Looks cringe now. The whole cinema's <laughs> laughing, you know. But, you know, for... I even remember, like, the iPod adverts, you know, the dancing, like, people with the white earphones and stuff. Well, that was very reminiscent of kind of Amiga demos, actually. You know, the silhouette of uh, uh, people in space balls and stuff like that, yeah. I never actually linked the two, but, yeah, you're right. But it was just, you know, that really defined the 2000s, really, didn't it, the iPod? And it's kind of like... Now they've actually... I know many people probably don't buy them anymore, but it's kind of the end of an era, isn't it, when such an iconic product's been discontinued? Yeah, totally. I still actually do use my iPod now and then, you know, if I'm going on holiday and I haven't got like, you know, you don't want to like to use my data up my phone or whatever. Mm. And I've got a classic that's got about, you know, 128 gigs in. So it had a lot of music on it, but I'm a bit of buy a new one now. Hopefully yeah, I'll, I'll, well, I'll last. <laughs> just, just keep cleaning your collection and then maybe one day they might be worth something. Scrub those MP3s. Yeah. <laughs> so rest in peace, the iPod. All right. You had a good run. You changed the world. R.I.P. iPod. Now, something else that we like on this show that's kind of replacing physical media, we've talked about these, you know, many times, flashcards. Oh, yes, flashcards. Now, these are the ones that, not for your camera, but these are the ones that you can stick into your console and kind of choose every single game on that system and just, boom, boot it up straight away. It's essentially a cartridge. You plug it at the top of your cartridge-based console. It's got an SD card slot on the top. You download your games on a computer, put it in there. Then you have your entire game collection available to play. Now, there is a website this week... It's still a bit of a technical investigation. This is called DB Electronics, and it turns out they reckon that flashcards could be slowly killing your retro console. Hmm. No, killing them any more than putting in and out lots of carts. Because I guess you leave that one cart in there, don't you? Yeah. So you're probably not doing that much physical damage, but you may be doing damage to the electronics, I guess. Or... That's what they're saying. Essentially, I mean, without getting into, you know too much technical Getting detail because yeah. <laughs> I don't understand uh, but essentially to do with the voltage because I reckon that there's a bit of a mismatch in what these um, you know the console outputs 5 volts into a 3.3 volt input and they reckon these flashcards essentially don't match that okay now, so some of the flashcards like the you know the, some of the Everdrives are designed quite well but some of the cheaper ones they reckon that essentially it's feeding, you know, the voltage can be damaging components inside your, your console Hammering slowly. capacitors. Or yeah, capacitors, like, yeah. diodes, that kind of thing as well. And they've got to dissipate this large amount of heat and it makes the consoles hotter as well. Now, they are saying that, you know, this is what their, um, their synopsis is, you know, without getting too nerdy. It says, prolonged use of components outside their specified tolerances inevitably leads to failure. On the console side, the stress is excessive current output on digital outputs when driving a high logic. On the cartridge side, the stress is excessive heat due to conduction of the clamping diodes. I've already heard from several friends that their NES consoles have died, most likely due to their admittedly heavy use of cheap multi-carts. These are particularly bad. I would avoid these like the plague, and I suspect poorly designed Everdrives will also require a bit more time, but will eventually start seeing more failures. So they're saying that really these flashcards might be, they're a bit too new really to see what the long-term effects are. Ah, but they're also saying that the cheaper range seem to be the ones doing it rather than, you know, because some of these flashcards can Mm -hmm. go into the 90, 80 pounds kind of range. And I guess those higher end ones are, are you know, doing a better job 
Well, they're looking here. They actually list a, a bunch of the common flashcards, whether they're dangerous or not, and that the verdict isn't that good, apparently. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> the vast majority listed as avoid, um, with only the Mega EverDrive X5, Turbo EverDrive X2, EverDrive NA, and the ST2 SNES coming out with high recommendation. All the rest, apparently, they reckon could damage it. It's, it's a hard balance, isn't it? It's kind of like, do you want to use your hardware? Do you want to preserve your hardware? Or I guess it's in the decision of the user. I mean, there is convenience, but again, it's like... You don't know, it might last another 20, 30 years before it shows any signs of damage, but yeah. the fact this guy said he's seen a few Nezes like, already die could be a coincidence. But... but then you can go down to the car boot sale and buy a new Nez for, like, you know, probably cheaper than the Nez Mini. Yeah. So it's... Interesting. Worth being aware of, I mean, especially if you've got maybe, like, a rare system. You know, I talked about wanting one for my Jaguar before, but... Oh, you know, yeah, the... that's... Yeah, it, with Jaguars, that <laughs> yeah. would be different. Shoving that into, in, into my top of my uh, Jaguar CD. But, maybe but, not there. But your Mega Drive... Yeah. You know, the the life that it came out and nowadays, the time between release, it's kind of a bit disposable. So we'll keep an eye on that story, you know, and update you if we get any more information on that. And you can read the report. We'll put that in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, you mentioned the Mega Drive and uh, the Mega CD. Yeah. Night Trap, one of your favourite games. Oh, well, this is one, <laughs> of the, one of the most controversial games as well. And they're actually read doing it so uh, we mentioned this on the show for the 25th anniversary An hd upgrade isn't it yeah. hd as well because yeah. they're taking it off the original film source yeah so there's a channel called my life in gaming i'm sure you've heard of them Dan, yeah yeah very good they do very very good documentaries now they've just done a 49 video uh, minute video which is a look at the kind of origins of the project and cancelled vhs yeah, it was it was going to be a VHS game at first. Yeah, I read that, yeah. yeah for the that Hasbro Control Vision console thing. I think Angry Video Game Nerd did a, a video on that at one time, but yeah. Yeah, and the kind of, you know, the violence controversy, the, the kind of failed Kickstarter and all of that is being compiled into this great documentary and they're mentioning it on retrogamer.net. So mm-hmm. I reckon you guys should all check that out and just check this channel out, My Life in Gaming. It's good they've got a lot of archive kind of footage in here as well. I mean, one thing you say about this channel is their production values and the amount of effort they put into their videos is second to none. Oh, yeah, these are like as high as, I'd say, the AVGN, you know, kind of episodes that he's done. Yeah, and they also look at, like, you know, the challenges of making FMV games in the early 90s on, you know, the, the Mega CD. And, you know, obviously, like you said, it was really the game that kind of introduced game ratings. And you look at it now, it looks... It's like a, so a, a teen yeah, slasher yeah. movie. It's isn't like it? Smash yeah. Hits magazine, something like that. It's just so lame, yeah. So they're going to be, um, you know, this is actually free to watch if you want to see it, 49 minutes long, and it's on YouTube. I think it, it is a game that at the time, I remember it coming out and seeing it running in, a, you know, like my local game shop when, as a demo for the Mega CD. We'd look at it and be like, oh, it's cool, there's videos on there. But I think it's one of those games that over the years has become a bit of like a legend, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, notorious. That's it probably because it's so bad yeah <laughs> um, I, I would be interested to see how many people actually buy the hd upgrade yeah i, I, I don't know i might have a go I might do a, a playthrough and see now obviously you mentioned the uh you know the nintendo mini yep. a minute ago didn't you obviously the snes mini is upcoming by christmas this year is this any surprise apparently nintendo have trademarked something that hints to the n64 classic mini oh interesting stuff because uh i was actually talking with a guy online i think it's ash evans and uh you know i'd had this picture that i printed uh taken of this printed amiga case that i got and he said oh you can you can get the plans for this and print it on etsy Mm -hmm. and that's going to cost him about 30 pounds and then he said i'm looking to do an n64 one 
but the materials that are needed is going to cost me about £200 to 3D print it. Wow. So <laughs> making a small little NAS alternative I don't think is a, is a realistic option in this case. Well, the N64, they reckon that um, Nintendo have actually filed a, tree, a few European trademarks and there's four line drawings in here uh, that represent the NES, SNES, Switch controllers, but also the filed one recently for the N64 gamepad. Mm. Well, it must be the hardest one to print. And are they going to leave the cart in or not? Or how's it going to look cart-wise as well? Well, I guess the um, the SNES Mini doesn't have a cart in the top, does it? It's no, just no. flat, so I guess it'd probably look a bit like that. But you know, they're also saying that... Um, this is highly probable that it's going to be a miniaturized version of the N64, but also remaking that gamepad, you know, with the kind of that weird little like analog yeah. stick it had and all that. It's, uh, but some people are saying maybe it's not, maybe it's a Switch compatible N64 gamepad for use with the virtual console. Oh, like a pro pad or something yeah. like that. Well, you know, they did like the, um, you could use the GameCube ones on the Wii U mm. with um, Super Smash Brothers. Maybe they're going to be bringing out some games on the virtual console that'll need it. So. Well, yeah, because there's, there's kind of been a revival of this kind of N64-like games at the moment with ukulele and stuff like that. And I, I find it really interesting because I'm modding my Wii U at the moment. Which is easy to do, isn't it? Very easy. Yeah. You can just get an SD card, pop it in and do a little load line thing, backdoor, and then get all your old emulators on. And that's great. And uh, I think this would be really nice. I'm wondering, are they going to have the blur in there? Yeah, it did look really blurry, the original system, when you output it to... I think it tried to smooth the jaggies a bit, didn't it? Yeah. That's why. Um, But yeah, I mean, because it wouldn't look right without it, you don't think? No, but I I, I wonder what titles they're going to put on there as well. Hopefully not Superman. (laughs) (laughs) Or or any of those kind of games. There's actually a wish list on here. Um, Road Rash, that wasn't very good. (laughs) Some fans on their pocketlint.com have got together and give their kind of, you know, if there's 20 or 30 games like there is on the other minis. Yeah. Uh, Obviously Super Mario 64, you'd want them there. Uh, 1080 degree snowboarding. Golden Eyes got to be on there, and that's the Absolutely. thing. The N64 was a very different beast to mm. the other consoles. They, you know, it had a lot more of an adult kind of um, theme in it. Was to like Conker's Bad Fur Day, and you know, there was there was a lot of titles that were kind of totally different. Even like Donkey Kong Country 64, the same Paper Mario. It'd be great to see on there. Star Fox 64. Star Fox, definitely, yeah. yeah Mario Kart 64. Pokemon Arena. Banjo-Kazooie. Yeah. yeah, Pokemon's on there. Legend of Zelda Rock Arena of Time would have to be on there, obviously. And Majora's Mask. You yeah. know, Super Smash Brothers, the original. Yeah, there's loads on here. And I mean, again, it's... Yeah, they've got GoldenEye listed, but... You know, I've, I've tried emulating the N64 on a few systems, and it's never been quite perfect. So next, do you think it's going to be a GameCube Mini and the discs are going to be like the size of polos or hula hoops? <laughs> no. I just wonder how far they can get with it, you know. Can you mini- I mean, you'd imagine by now, maybe you could, but still, you know, a lot of systems, the emulation's not quite perfect for them still. Yeah. So. Weird thing as well, weird fact here. Wii U, I can emulate GameCube games on it. Yeah, because well, it, it runs Wii games, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so. the Wii is just a GameCube in a different box. Yeah, yeah, so, so you can have a big fat external hard drive, all your Wii games on it, all your everything. It's yeah, great. pretty sexy. But you know, I think it's only logical that probably next year they're going to do an N64 Mini. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm going to buy it. <laughs> oh, it's like, yeah, but it's crazy to think, isn't it? You remember when that machine came out, and we've talked to you know, when we had David Doak on here. He talked about the first time he saw the N64 prototype, and it was the size of a photocopier. Yeah. Now it could fit in your, like, your wrist. It's like I, I'd basically, I'd turn my na- nose up at Nintendo stuff before, and mm. then I kind of went around my friend Callum's house, and he was just playing GoldenEye 
And I was like, what is this? Yeah. And then just proximity mines everywhere, Golden Gun, just in love with that game. Every night after school for about a year. <laughs> well, it's the one real Nintendo system you think of where really they sang the power of the machine, didn't they? Yeah. And now it's always like, oh, Nintendo don't compete on specs. But then it was like, you know, Project Reality, we're but working no with Silicon Graphics. Had, no and... one had ever seen anything like Mario 64 when it came out. You know, a kind of environment and a platformer like that. It was yeah. so, so far ahead, actually. You it forget that really... now looking at it, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, so it was. I mean, it was like such a powerful system for the time. And people forget that Nintendo did that. But, yeah, it'd be cool if you can fit it in the palm of your hand, though, next year. Oh, isn't that so. would be good. <laughs> now, let's finish with... A little bit of a sad story. She's very sad. Uh, I don't know if you saw this. There's actually a um, an organisation who are uh, like a computer museum based in North Carolina. They're called Save the Machine Computer Preservation Group. And they had a massive fire. I saw the photo and it, it, it was incredibly sad. It made me just like want to cry. I was like... Because these places do such good work, you know, yeah. kind of preserving the computers. And I know the amount of effort that these people put in to saving the machines. I remember being at Bletchley Park and there was this one guy who rebuilt Colossus, which was one of the original machines, like kind of solo by himself. It was his 12 years work, you know, and I'm sure there's stories with each machine like that at the moment. Well, in here they've got like, you know, their Cray machines, oh, you know, God. original Cray workstations. They've got like, you know, massive old Vax mainframes, original 1960s IBM mainframes all set up and working they had. They had loads of microcomputers, consoles, must be gutted. They've lost pretty much their entire collection, including an Apple One that was in mint condition. Oh, jeez. Where, where is this? Uh, North Carolina. It North was Carolina. And Poor they, guys. Well, they actually shared the building with a few other businesses, and I think you know they're still not exactly sure what started the fire. Um, you know, probably not one of their old machines. I'd imagine. No, no I, I probably think they'll probably be knowing those machines. That would probably be the safest part of the building. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, because it's full of techies. You know. Yeah, so. you think they know it really. Yeah. Well. You know, it said that their Facebook status said it's with a heavy heart we're reporting a near, near total loss of our most amazing collection. So oh, obviously, these guys are kind of starting from scratch again. Um, at the moment, they're trying to raise donations to find a new place. You know, to base um, it in. They've got insurance, obviously, that doesn't cover getting all these classic machines and sourcing them and getting them all built up again. Well, well we can just hope that there's kind of deposits of old machines and kind of enthusiasts around America that are going to help these guys. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if anyone's uh, would like to give them a bit of help, you know, whether that could be donations or, you know, replacing machines they lost, and we'll put a link to their Facebook page in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. Right then, well, thank you for checking out episode number 82 of the Retro Hour podcast. We'll be out again next Friday, your little treat before the weekend. Uh, please keep your emails coming in, show at theretrohour.com and your tweets at Retro Hour UK. And all your photos as yeah. well, because we're, we're absolutely loving this. Like, it's really nice to get some user interaction. Yeah, it's just great. cool to see, you know, all these far-flung corners of the world, these amazing locations that yeah, people yeah, have done. it just makes us grin. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Please do keep those coming in. And right then, are you ready to get your Commodore 64 on? Totally. Here is and this week's special guest, Jörg Druger from Scene World, and we'll see you next Friday. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome this week's very special guest. Welcome to the show, Jörg. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to come on this week. Now, you know, Ravi and I have done shows before about, you know, the Amiga demo scene and Dismags and that kind of thing. But obviously, the Commodore 64 has got a huge scene as well. 
And uh, obviously you've got, you know, the biggest Commodore 64 C mag that we need to talk about in just a moment. But I thought it would be quite nice to get a bit of background on you and uh, find out where it all started for you. So what was your first ever computer experience? Mine was due to my grandfather having a Z64. So I used to play with him against him when I was a, a small kid. And in 1990, when I was eight, I actually got my own Z64. And this is how I started with the Z64. So essentially it was like sitting on your grandpa's lap and playing video games that way. <laughs> kind of, yes. And what games do you remember playing then? For example, Cauldron, Castle of Dr. Creep, Prestles, which was a variant of, I think it was called Elevator in the arcades, where you had to paint walls in a building. So that is the, that is the kind of games that I remember. I love Cauldron. That was the one where you were a witch, wasn't it? On a, on a broomstick flying. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> yes. It was one of the early games that actually got um, a German version as well called Hexenküche. And the, uh, the second one, Cauldron 2, was actually released in English, French and German. So was it generally your granddad's games that you played? How did you get hold of your own games when you, you got your own Commodore 64? Well, later on by having friends over school. In 98, when I actually was joining the demo scene, I had a lot of access to games and demos. So 98 was the time I first saw a demo. And that was totally awesome, you know? Mm -hmm. All the technical limitations being broken and all the special effects. So that is actually how I remember my early days in the scene. Swapping discs, writing long notes, getting tons of discs in, in the letterbox each day from the postman. Well, I, I wasn't a user of disc mags, and I never kind of knew about them. Um, I didn't know this whole scene was going on. How did you find out about them? Because when I was swapping with people on some discs, we are not just demos, but also um, disc mags. For example, like Vandalism News or Triven. And um, I figured 98, Triven was dead. It was the final issue. And um, I figured I would like to make a new magazine that would combine the NTSC demo scene and the PAL demo scene. And also Geos users and all the other kind of C64 users you can think of. And to, to reach all is actually the reason why we um, have mouse support. So I thought it would appeal more to Geos users to have a graphical interface that they can use a, a 1351 mouse with. And uh, what kind of items would these disc mags contain then? What would be the uh, content? The content? Well, I mean, we still have it nowadays, so we, we cover everything from party reports to demos to interviews to an assembler tutorial, you know. And, and I'm pretty proud about the interview sections that we have. Well, I'm quite interested to, you know, you mentioned you got your Commodore 64 in 1990. I mean, did you stick with the C64 all the way through the 90s then, or did you move on to other platforms? I did get a PC in 93, and I got um, finally a INPC in 95, but I never got rid of my C64. It always had a place in my heart. And what about consoles? I had a Game Boy in uh, about the same time I got the um, C64, and I had an NES. Mm -hmm. And a Super Nintendo. Right, so you have quite a range of systems then. Yes, but but you know how it is with kids. In '94, I lost interest 
in the NES, SNS, Game Boy, and my parents unfortunately sold everything on the flea market. So in the last seven years, I bought it all again because <laughs> um, because I got into the scene and I got friends where I live that are also into the retro scene. So I bought the systems again. And uh, parents never really knew the value of those systems, did they? No, no, it was like, I'm collecting electronic trash. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that I had an Amiga with like, you know, everything hanging off the side of it, you know, CD-ROM drives and all that kind of stuff. My mum's like, you know, you're not taking that away to university with you. I'm going to buy you a real computer. And she got me a PC, but I just ended up taking both with me in the end. (laughs) Yeah, but of course nowadays do the the retro hype and due to somewhere stuff having a a value of thousands of euros sometimes, they saw, okay, maybe it's not all trash, maybe there's really some value in it. Unfortunately, my family began to understand that such things have collective value. Well, did you ever think that, you know, kind of, when you first started in the scene, nine years later, you'd be creating a floppy disk magazine that would be... No, I know. know, No, I mean, the funny thing is, when we released our first issue in 2001, I was still at education and doing my IT education, and during the day, the radio called, you know, German radio called me, and my mom said, you know... Um, the German radio called, they want to interview. And, uh, you know, I was like, you're kidding me. The German radio is not calling to interview me. And so said, yeah, sure, they are. I never, I never thought we would be big enough to have our own booth at Gamescom. We never thought, I never thought I would be interviewed in German television about the NES Classic Mini, you know. I never thought I would get an NES Classic Mini from Nintendo Germany for German television, you know. But it happened that due to scene world, everybody in my in my city actually knew me because they all saw breakfast television or the news in the evening and saw me, the big German <laughs> video game collector, you know, talking about the NES Classic Mini. So I never planned that scene world would be big and have a 20... 20-something staff, and we would do all this stuff that we do nowadays, you know. <laughs> we, do, we do basically everything, but it was ne- never planned this way. We, we only wanted to do the disc mech, but suddenly the retro hype started it all. And well, going, right. going back a few steps, I mean, you mentioned, you, you know, when you first discovered the demo scene, how did you first find it, and what demos really stand out in your mind as, like, you know, really being jaw-dropping? Nine from Reflex. And, of course, uh, Dutch Priest is one that is always mentioned. But my, my, my favorite demo is still Nine from Reflex. And I like this um, the skiing snowman, the skiing guy that is skiing down the hill. That, that animation that really impressed me. Well, uh, the demos always had really good soundtracks as well. Were there any particular songs or artists that you liked? I'm more into video game music so or computer game music so Yavuntel is one of my heroes and Chris Hulsbeck is another hero of mine you know and also Chris Craig who did summer games not not summer games Uh, it was California games yeah who did the intro music for California games also also pretty famous you know 
just to mention a few. And if we're talking Sid musicians, I mean, um, Rob Hubbard, I imagine you're a fan of him? Yes, but actually I have to say, I'm, I'm, even, I'm even a bit more impressed by the music he made over a, an, an internal PC speaker, you know? Yeah. Ski or Die on an internal PC speaker? Oh my God! So he he really he really um, made good music out of a beeping internal PC speaker without any sound card or anything. This is impressive. Yeah, because Sid on the Commodore sixty four was a proper synthesizer, but you know the the PC speaker had like what a few little tones. That was it, wasn't it? And not a lot of people know that actually Rob Hubbard did awesome PC speaker music, because most people would say, "Oh, it's ear cancers," and I'm not I'm not listening to it in the first place. Well, have you you know talking about the Commodore sixty four in general? Have you um, kind of used any of the other variants of the C sixty four, like the C sixty four GS and the SX, that kind of stuff? I have a GS. Nice. And the SX is used for for testing each scene world issue on NTSC on a real hardware. You don't release it on the GSN on cartridge? No, 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 not for <laughs> releasing. No, no, um, it, the GS is just for my Verity collection. They're very rare now, aren't they? Yes, well, I was lucky. I got it for a good price. Well, when did you first get online then? I got um, online in first online at school in 97. And my own internet connection... I got in the year 2000, and uh, three years later, I actually got DSL. So that means that um, since the internet wasn't really spread much in the early 2000s even in Europe, we, we still used the phone back in the day when we did the first scene world issues, and we used Post to send the texts on disks around between me and our guy, Andrew Fisher in UK, who did the code in putting all together. So it was a lot of postal work. <laughs> so I remember, like, you know, some other, like, you know, Amiga C magazines and people then would have to, you'd have to write it, save it on a floppy disk, send it to someone, wait two months till it got appeared in the magazine. It's crazy to think that we, we did that kind of stuff now, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. It's true, it's true. But, but I'm happy that we are still doing the disk mag. And I'm happy that people are interested in. Well, you know, when you first got online then, um, did you discover then that there was quite a big Commodore 64 community online and did that surprise you? Yes, because from what I was thinking, everything stopped in, in, in the year 1991. So I was really very surprised. I didn't, I didn't expect that there would be new magazines, new games, still active people. It's, it's... So I was very happy, but I, I wasn't expecting it. It's kind of crazy because we've had developers come on and, you know, people say, oh, they they never thought that the um, kind of scene would be alive on the internet and they've typed their own name in and then suddenly there's loads of <laughs> topics or websites about it and, you know, they can come back to that group and find that retro interest again. Yeah, it's true. When I was, when I was interviewing Chris Craig via um, email, actually, and we released it, a lot of people asked us, is it fake or did you really interview him and sent him the questions by email? And I said, yes, I did. I really talked to him on the phone. We really did the interview. And we were the first, he said, in 30 years, nobody ever asked him about anything of Epics or Lucasfilm games. Wow. Um, and, and the main reason is he was so bloody hard to find. It took me 11 years. <laughs> 
<laughs> but it must, you know, to them, I mean, I imagine that was like one job they did like 20, 30 years ago. They've moved on and then it must be quite surreal for them when someone comes along and asks about it, I guess. Yes, yes. Um, it, it was totally stunning for him. But, but, but t- uh, till then, well, what happened after was, was is, um, he added me on LinkedIn, so, and I still have his phone number, so if, if I ever want something to know about the good old days at Epics again, it, it won't be easy, but if I try hard enough, you know, um, then maybe I can reach him again. So it's not like, like he, he would um, not like to talk about it anymore, no, it was more like he was so much hidden in his in his um, private life, and um, he was not really much active on the internet. So that is why he was so hard to to find. And also, there are like fifty people with the name Chris Crick in California, and it takes a lot to to find the right guy with the same name. But I I find it kind of fascinating that you said that people will come and kind of go what's this a floppy disk but parents will also have the shared memory and you're kind of keeping that shared memory alive of yeah, the disk true. magazine and it, it, it kind of means that kids can learn about it and they'll get into it as well and think oh how can we distribute something differently or maybe make our own zine or something like that what thrills me the most is really that um that it's now nowadays culture thing so it's seen as valued as films movies and books and stuff and i think that's exactly right because a video game is also a piece of art so it's it's really getting now what it deserves so this retro hype has its good into finally getting the games preserved and as we all know some games are already lost because you know some games were on on um, on PCBs that are broken, you know, and and not not all data has been restored. It's it's important to do it now before the same happens to video games that happened to to silent movies, where the first silent movies corroded and are lost forever. And that shouldn't happen with video games too. That's my perspective. So you started SeamWorld in uh, the year two thousand. Then, so what was the original idea behind it? The original idea behind it was to make um, a magazine that combines the user group of NTSC, would be America, Canada, and Europe, Paul. So to make a magazine that runs on Paul machines and NTSC machines and all mm, via auto-detecting what hardware you have on your C64 and the which speed it needs to play, that is what I wanted to do. And this is what we um, successfully made, actually. So we, we got a lot of articles and group, group members from America, too, you know. So not only Europeans. And, um, and a, a little side effect of all this is, for example, that nowadays when you have commercial C64 games released, let it be from ProTovision or City or Psytronic, or Dr. Rural, or all the other labels that are, that are out there, 99% of all games are now NTSC fixed, you know? Because suddenly America, American scene is 
is important again, you know. I think the time has never been better for video games on the C64 than it is now. And Seymour's, you know, it's not a demo uh, magazine, is it, which a lot of them were? No, we are a demo scene magazine. We, we, we are covering everything, even even computer games and stuff. And that is why, why at the beginning people didn't like us, us so much because we had a, a really unique concept that wasn't there before. A disc mag that covers everything, nobody wants that, you know. But then in 2005, we took a break for five years, and in 2010, we returned to activity, and people started to, to like it again. So you are right when you say that, that we are special. Yeah. And, and um, I also like to make crazy new stuff, you know. For example, um, we did a Twitch show via the alpha version of multiplayer online from device emulator. And everybody was like, you are crazy. How can you make a live show on Twitch via an alpha version on, on Vice that is bugged like hell? I'm saying, like, why not? Let's try. And, and actually, we had a guest, uh, Sinat Palic, who is pretty much known in the German retro scene. And we played Wheel of Fortune in the end. And after that live show, we figured that another 30 retro channels on Twitch suddenly played all Wheel of Fortune on the Commodore 64. So we had some real influence there. That was quite funny. Well, I also love the fact that you've got the um, emulator online, so you can actually boot the magazine in your browser. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that, was, not <clears throat> Sorry, that was not easy to get, but we were able to convince... Richard Janicek, who, who did um, Wise JavaScript to help us and implement the features that we need to get SeaWorld on the web. Because that's a feature that a lot of readers asked us, like, I would like to, to, to read SeaWorld at, at work on my lunch break, but I'm not allowed to install any program or copy any zip file on it. So can you make it online? So finally we did. Yeah, because people could bring their um, SX64 in and boot it up on that, I guess, otherwise. <laughs> yeah, sure, that's another option. If you're rich enough and if you're strong if you enough, are like Hulk and have, and have the muscles to carry it all around, maybe. So was it a conscious decision that you would release it just as a D64 file and not as like HTML or PDF originally? Yes, I, I, never, I never want to lose um, the feeling of a disk mag. So it was a clear decision for me. I don't want to make an HTML version of it or a PDF version of it. I want it to stay um, a disk Mac. But but that doesn't that doesn't mean that we are not going to change and say we go one step ahead and provide both. The main thing that I always wanted to keep is having the disk Mac experience. So I said, if we have it online, we have it as a JavaScript emulator running on the website first. So how do you go about creating the magazine? Is this uh, through emulation or do you have an office full of uh, C64s? <laughs> no, no, no. We, we, we have a secret uh, Facebook group where we organize. Then we have some tools like converters and all that stuff. Well, I'm, I'm, not, really, I'm not really the guy that is putting the stuff together. But from what I guess, we, we are using um, cross-development tools. So, you know, for someone who may not have read SeamWorld before and if they, you know, they're hearing this and they think, I've got to give that a try, 
What kind of stuff can they expect then? What kind of articles and what, what kind of flavour can they get from the mag? Anything. Think about parties, party reports, game news. Think about interviews. We actually um, have somebody in Serbia that is uh, uh, transcribing the video interviews. Some of them are getting into the magazine as task files because some people prefer to read the interview instead of watching a two hours video on YouTube. So you can expect anything really that covers the C64. And, um, and a lot of stuff that I do with Scene World were like child dreams, you know? Dreams I had as a child or as a teenager. You know, I would love to to talk to this person and to that person. And thanks to to Scene World and that whole staff we have, we finally have a platform where we, where we can actually talk to such famous people. I mean, I mean, you know this yourself. Yeah. Your your roost of famous people is is amazing as well. I mean, well, I, I saw the list of people you interviewed in the podcast, so you know, you know the feeling. You know how it is. It's our childhood heroes as well. It's like people you used to read about when you were young, and you never thought you'd get a chance to talk to them, did you? Yeah, and now you do the same mm-hmm. in your podcast. Well, uh, one fantastic one you got was Ralph Bear as well before he uh, sadly passed away. And, yeah. you know, he's the pioneer in video games, you know, the father. Um, uh, how amazing was that to do? Yeah, at the time I interviewed him, I didn't know that that my interview with Ralph Bear would be the final one. I never thought that, you know. I was totally uh, shocked when I heard about the news. He must have been what, about 90, 92 then, was he? Well, he knew his stuff. Uh, that was pretty interesting. He was very well aware, you know. He he had an iPad. He used an iPad. He he used uh, he he used modern stuff, you know. He also knew about the NES, and he 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 was totally aware of of everything around him. I, I could I could talk to him and ask him about violence in video games and all that stuff. He he had an answer to everything. That was totally amazing, you know, because the first question that people asked me when I told them I interviewed uh, Ralph Bear was, he was, he's 91, was he still sane? Was he still in the now? Was he still aware of, uh, of the stuff that, that happened around him? He was, he was totally sharp in his mind. And that's really, um, that's really great. And, and he did, he still did teach kids electronic engineering at university, you know, at, at his age. So, Well, um, we're going to leave these notes. Uh, we're going to leave these links in the show notes because they're fantastic interviews. And all our listeners, I'd recommend that you check them all out because they're, they're really good. And uh, another one was with, I'm going to try and say his name, Alexei Pridz. Prigidnov. Prigidnov. I can never say the creator of Textris. No, no, it's actually Alexei Petridnov. Petridnov. Ah, there you go. (laughs) How was was that interview? And uh, did you find out anything? Well, he he was a creator of Tetris, wasn't he, for people that don't know? Yes, yes. Uh, It was one of the hardest interviews to get. I was flirting with the the person on the front desk at at the software company. (laughs) Ah, that's how you do it. (laughs) You need to be more handsome, Ravi. Yeah. <laughs> I need to get some uh, chat-up lines. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people don't don't know that sometimes um, from the first moment I decide I want to have a guest till the moment I have a guest, it can actually take 10 years or 12 years. 
that's that's not that's not unusual because people are either hard to find or hard to convince or you know sometimes it's not easy and these people are kind of you know once in a lifetime they're like the leaders pioneers of this new kind of technology world so you definitely need exactly. to get them down it's worth 12 years <laughs> it's ex exactly exactly yeah you know and uh, people live long nowadays so a lot of people that i interview um they are pretty old but they're still around so why not interviewing them you know and it's it's always inspiring to to talk to such people you know um, for example, when I interviewed Forrest Moser, who, who invented speech synthesis, you know, I asked him, what is the thing you are the most proud of? And he said, well, doing the voice acting for Ghostbusters on the C64 and saying, he slimed me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's stuff you find out like that you'd never expect, though, isn't it? Yes, yeah. So that is why my interviews are always an hour long, two hours three hours, because I try to gather every aspect of a person, you know. Have you ever had any guests who've got kind of like unusual demands? I know, I think I heard that John Draper, when you interviewed him, he didn't want you to edit the video in the slightest. Yes, yeah. That's why the interview is pretty rough. He, he's fantastic, isn't he? Such a pioneer, Captain Crunch, you know. Um, with... Yes, and, and every couple of years he comes to my city and visits his friends, including me. So I was his host two years ago totally amazing and I would do it every time again so he's a, he's a good friend of mine yes but it's interesting that you pick it yeah so that is why the interview of um, me and Captain Crunch the video interview was pretty rough because it was the conditions that I don't touch the recording in the slightest well one interview that we watched that we were quite in awe of was um, you chatted to no Nolan Bushnell um, how did you find him to talk to and what did you learn from interviewing him <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that that people always pick the Nolan Bushnell interview because I always had the feeling that it was maybe not my best interview I, I took. Um, how I got a hold of him is just making friends with Walter Day, who founded uh, Twin Galaxies, and he's a personal friend of Nolan Bushnell. So we just made the connections together, and this is how I got a hold of him. And what I learned, what I learned from from him and the other interviews is, um, doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter what you achieved. It's all depending on the attitude. If if you if you want and if you do your best, you can still be healthy. You can still be present in what's happening nowadays, and you can still invent new stuff. You can still pioneer the world even if you are 80 or above it's all about attitude if you are lucky and you you don't get a serious illness of course and we, we always find that people love to kind of talk about that certain time period because maybe they're doing something totally different now but that time was you know back in the past when they did something really fun that they kind of enjoyed and were celebrated about so it's it's great to get these people on to kind of you get to hear that passion coming through. It's true. And uh, all those pioneers said they didn't think they would pioneer anything when they did, actually. And um, it's also interesting to see that coding a sampler was a necessity in the 70s and 80s to actually use your, your stuff that you invented, you know. This might be a hard question, but 
Is there any one thing you found out from doing an interview with somebody that like really, really surprised you? And you're like, I didn't know that at all. Uh, that I didn't know that at all. Yes, that's that's um, that's a good question. I I can I can tell you with without without revealing too much that our next podcast guest that we will publish, you know, we we are doing this. We we are doing it. Me. AJ, who is our podcast main moderator and the co-moderator, and Andrew Fisher, who is known because he is working for Retro Magazine UK. He's one of the biggest game experts in retro. He is writing books about video games and stuff. So Andrew Fisher is a, a huge name, and I'm really, I'm really glad that we have him as a friend. So we interviewed this guy, our next guest, you know, and yeah, and he, he is doing this and that nowadays. And how did you enter the scene? Pretty, pretty good. And in the middle of the interview, he said, "You know, back in the '80s, I, I used to work on video games in the same building like Rob Hubbard." Right. <laughs> and 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 I've listened to some of his songs three months before they were actually released. And we were all like, wow, we didn't know that. So we are actually talking to a pioneer that we didn't know was a pioneer. <laughs> we're not worthy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, because some people are pretty modest, you know. Mm. Oh, yeah, I do stuff nowadays. But they wouldn't say, like, I was a big shot big in, back in the 80s. Oh, has there been anyone that you've wanted to interview but you could not get on? <laughs> Tons of people. Tons yeah, this big list. <laughs> Probably the no, same as ours. No, it's actually not so big. Mm-hmm. Um, one big name I never caught, caught interview was Bruce Artwick, who invented flight simulation on home computers. I think it was 84, mm-hmm. or maybe a bit earlier. Yes, yes, yes. It was in 79, he did flight simulator for the Apple II. For the very first and one. the TRS. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. Bruce Artwick. And he, he, unfortunately, unfortunately, there's only one interview, 10 minutes on a fair for video games on YouTube. And it's really, really bad, unfortunately. But he, he, but he never does interviews. He generally um, denies to do any interviews. And, and I'm trying since 17 years to find somebody who is a good friend of him and maybe could help me to get in touch with him and convince him that there are good interviewers, like myself, hopefully, that can ask the right questions and make the people that I interview um, feel well enough so that we, can, that we can finally get this part of history on recording and preserved for the future. That would be, that would be my biggest wish. Proust, Proust Artwick. Would be um, would be really awesome. Well, yeah. let's get back to the Commodore sixty four. I mean, at the moment, the the Commodore sixty four scene is quite a, an exciting place. I mean, you know, in, in wasn't a, it always? Well, I mean, recently there has been some uh, you know projects to remake the Commodore sixty four in modern hardware. We've got a few of those on the go right now. Another another exclusive podcast interview <laughs> with Jen Schoenfeld in English. Ooh, yes, yes, yes. Well, there's all, oh, no. I mean, there's another one as well, isn't there? The Commodore 64 Ultimate as well that got announced recently. From, the, from Gideon, yeah. yeah. So what, what do you think of all these projects to remake the C64 in modern hardware? Great. I, I, know, I know all those three projects, guys, you know. I know Darren Mailburn. I know Jens Schoenfeld. 
I I know Gideon and I know all all three of them has the knowledge and the power to to get the stuff together. And it will be interesting who of the three six sixty four machines will be the leading platform. But yes, it's interesting because I know all three um, people are capable of making it happen. Well, I find it really interesting because I know there's been a lot of Spectrum remakes recently. And I, uh, I, and a lot of them failed. You yeah, mean. yeah. And I've never been into the Spectrum, actually. I've never, I'm ashamed to admit, I've never had an 8-bit machine. Um, oh, I know. <laughs> and um, I saw the Spectrum next and I was like, I really want one of these and I want to get into the 8-bit world. So do you think there'll be some extra people coming into the C64 fold? Yeah, I mean, I met people that are like um, 10 years younger than me and started with Z4C. So they are still kids, you know, that find their way into retro scene. I mean, I, I, I have a friend, uh, he, is, he is 18 and he, he is a big, big retro freak. He is repairing all the old machines and stuff. He's totally into that. So you don't have to be old and moldy to to enjoy retro yellowing <laughs> <laughs> so what's the most impressive thing that you've ever seen done with the c64 oh good question one thing would be the metal dust game which uses the super cpu another thing would be um movie videos totally impressive and um yeah such such things you know and, and most people didn't know that Lemmings on the C64 almost didn't make it because people said it's impossible, but a Dutch group of designers actually connected two Amigas to get enough power to develop Lemmings on the C64, which was actually the final commercial game in 1984, and there was a run which would be the latest or which would be first uh, Mayhem in Monsterland or Lemmings, and Mayhem in Monsterland was a few months earlier than Lemmings back in the day. So Lemmings was actually the first, uh, the last, the last commercial game on the commercial market, and actually also the last ZZC4 game that Jeruntel did the music for. I think one of the most interesting videos that I've seen recently, I don't know if you saw this on YouTube, um, it's a guy that uses the um, Casio Pay to do the home automation using a Commodore 64. Never saw that, no. There's a guy, he literally, he wakes up in the morning, the Commodore 64 turns his lights on, it sets his kettle on, his toaster, the microwave, it's like, it runs his whole house from the Commodore 64. Wow. And if anything fails and it burns, it also puts <laughs> out the fire? That's the risk. Yeah. So a small price to pay to run your house from a Commodore 64. <laughs> <laughs> but it is cool that people are still doing these projects with it, like, you know, over 30 years later, isn't it? Yeah, true. I mean, man. And some of that stuff is really mass production nowadays. I mean, the Ultimate, for example, one of the most sold cartridges nowadays for the C64. You actually have a long waiting list if you want one. So um, if our listeners have heard this interview, where can they kind of find you and download the disc mag? And everything? Well, you, you can find all our stuff at seaworld.org. You can find the uh, disc mag there. You can watch it online, read it online. You can listen to our podcast there. Our YouTube channel is at youtube.seaworld.org. You can watch all the interviews there. So... Yeah, so it's basically seenworld.org. 
Well, Jürgen, it's been great talking to you and, you know, hearing your passion for the Commodore 64 and Retro. You know, it's, uh, it, it's very enthusiastic. I hope you do continue that for many years to come. Well, I want to make uh, another 17 years. <laughs> you can do it easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we will all be old and grey, but at least we still have our disc magazine and all, all the, all the um, other stuff. But the thing is, then we will be the old people being interviewed by other young people. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> what, I remember this thing called podcasts. You know, they were yeah. about that, weren't they? Yeah, well, it was a pleasure talking to you here, guys. And uh, thanks a lot.